From uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast where we also veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. Special thanks to some of my patrons, Jessica, Janice, Pixie, Rachel, Whitney, Maya, Alethea, Elena, Katoras, Catherine, Sam, Linda, Katerina, Teresa, Sophie, Nanette, my two Emmas, Emily, Galen, Bree, David, John, and Judy. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that I can bring you more of what you crave. Also, like, share, and subscribe. It just might help our little community grow. And if you happen to watch on YouTube and also use Spotify, consider watching on Spotify instead as they have been kind enough to sponsor me a bit and, well, we all know how YouTube treats us. But my podcasts are all written with the listener in mind, so nothing is missed. Today's podcast will be the story of Danielle Crockett. Now, if you remember, I dedicated an entire episode to Jeannie, a little girl who was left tied to a chair in a dark room nearly all of her life until she was discovered. And though experts did try to help her to bring her some level of normalcy, she was ultimately left in an institution where it is presumed she still remains to this day. There is a foundation that pays for her care, but they absolutely will not release any information about her. If you are interested in listening to that episode, I don't think I'd made a video yet, I will link it in the notes below. So, without further ado, let's get into the story. Danielle Crockett was born on September 21st, 1998 in Las Vegas, Nevada. Her mother was Michelle Sarah Crockett. Her father, well, she apparently never got his name. He had been a one-night stand. Michelle's backstory is that back in 1976, she had met Bernard Hill Crockett Jr. while she was a student at the University of Tampa, though she had been born and raised in Syracuse, New York. He was 10 years older than her and was also a Vietnam veteran. They married, moved to Las Vegas, where he drove a taxi for a living. Soon after, they had two sons, Bernard III and then Grant, two years later. 
Apparently, Grant was a bit behind the average developmental curve, not being potty trained until he was four years old and didn't talk until he was five. Michelle later said that Grant was placed in the special education classes. And then in the mid-90s, her husband became sick and the doctors apparently said it was related to the Agent Orange he had been exposed to during the war. He passed away in 1997, the year before Danielle had been born. Michelle was 40 years old. So she became the single parent to Bernard, who was at that time 15 years old, and the now 12-year-old Grant. She later said that she had been forced to file for bankruptcy. Six months after she had buried her husband, she was out in the casinos when she met a man who was there on business. She accompanied him to his room, and the most she could say about him was that his name was either Ron or Bob. They parted ways after the deed was done, so to speak, and weeks later, she discovered she was pregnant. So she was now going to have a baby with an unknown father. Danielle was born a healthy, happy baby girl weighing 7 pounds, 6 ounces, or 3.35 kilograms. She did make a point to say that the baby was quite fussy. Michelle later said that she had lost her job, thus finding herself having serious money problems. She lost the mobile home they had been living in, and some sources say it actually burned in a fire, and lost all of her possessions, and decided to take the boys and her infant daughter, get into a Greyhound bus, and move to Plant City, Florida, east of Tampa, and in with a cousin of hers. She and her children could stay with them until she got back on her feet. Now, I was able to find that she had worked as a cashier at Publix Supermarket and later a local Walmart, but most sources stated she didn't have a steady job often and was also often seen walking around, smoking cigarettes, and flirting with random men in casinos. This suggests that little Danielle was either left with her brothers to care for her or she was left to fend for herself. And Michelle later said that while she was working, she had indeed left little Danielle with her sons and particularly Grant. And I don't want to be insensitive to anyone who has special needs, but let's just say he was most assuredly not able to care for anyone else. And this was basically life. Most everyone never knew Michelle even had a daughter at all. Throughout the years, life went on. Now, starting in 2002, someone called the local child abuse hotline, stating that a child around the age of three was being left unattended for days at a time with a brother who was definitely not capable of caring for the young child. And that child was also never seen wearing anything other than a diaper, ever. Then when Danielle was about four years old, Michelle, her basically grown sons, and allegedly a boyfriend of Michelle's moved into a rental house. And this house would never be thought of as anything nice. In fact, it was described as run down. The neighbors were aware 
that she, her boyfriend, and her sons lived there, but no one else. They certainly had never seen anyone else playing outside in the yard that hadn't been properly maintained in a long time. Others that did know Michelle stated that she and her boyfriend would be at the Moose Lodge, smoking and playing bingo, leaving the children alone overnight, sometimes many nights. It was said that they knew she was an unfit mother. She was visited by officials on a couple of occasions who said that the goal was to keep the child with the parent and offer that parent resources to help them, but Michelle actually refused any help. She insisted she was fine. Everything was fine. She said she was actively trying to potty train Danielle and would enroll her in school as soon as possible. And then in early 2005, the now seven-year-old Danielle just happened to be seen peeking out through a broken window. The witness later reported that the little girl looked young, perhaps five or six years old, and entirely too thin. Her face appeared sunken in, her eyes dark and distant. The witness said that the child just kind of stared up into the sunlight, then disappeared from the window. In passing, they would look out to see if they would see her little face again, but nothing. Month after month, nothing. And then that June, someone finally contacted the authorities and neighbors watched a police car pull up to the house. The officers walked up to a car parked alongside the road. The door was open, a woman uncontrollably sobbing inside. She identified herself as working for the Florida Department of Children and Families, and she said that in all her years investigating allegations of child abuse, the conditions within this particular house and the small child within were by far and large, the absolute worst she had ever seen. The officers approached the house, and as they got to the open door, one had to take several steps back as a wave of nausea overtook him. He said, quote, I've been in rooms with bodies rotting there for a week, and it never stunk that bad. There's just no way to describe it. Urine and feces dog, cat, and human excrement smeared on the walls, mashed into the carpet, everything dank and rotting, end quote. One article written by Lane de Gregory for the Floridian described it as, quote, tattered curtains, yellow with cigarette smoke, dangling from bent metal rods, cardboard and old comforters stuffed into broken, grimy windows, Trash blanketing the stained couch, the sticky counters, the floor, walls, even the ceiling seemed to sway beneath legions of scuttling roaches. End quote. A detective said, quote, It sounded like you were walking on eggshells. You couldn't take a step without crunching German cockroaches. They were in the lights, in the furniture, even inside the freezer the freezer, end quote. This detective saw a middle-aged woman in the house. 
She agreed that it was her house and that the grown men on the trash-covered couch were her sons. She freely admitted that she also had a daughter, but she wanted to know what this was all about, seemingly clueless. The detective waited and walked over trash and feces, looking into areas he came across until he came to a door. As he opened it and his eyes began to adjust to the darkness, he saw a little girl, Danielle. She was laying on a filthy mattress on the floor. It was painfully obvious that she was malnourished. Her dark hair was horribly matted and infested with lice. Her skin was covered in insect bites, rashes, and sores, and she was completely naked, save for a diaper that she had been wearing long enough that it was hugely swollen. The detective stated, quote, the pile of dirty diapers in that room must have been four feet high. That child was just lying there, surrounded by her own excrement and bugs, end quote. He scooped her up, and he later said she yelped like a lamb. Quote, it felt like I was picking up a baby. I put her over my shoulder, and that diaper started leaking down my leg. End quote. Danielle didn't struggle against him, though. As he began to walk back through the house, he asked her what her name was, but she had no reaction to his question. As he walked, he began looking around for some kind of clothes to put on her, perhaps even a toy to accompany her during her escape from that disgusting house, but he only saw wadded-up laundry stained with feces and toys that were covered in maggots and roaches. As he passed Michelle, he confronted her about her seriously ill daughter as well as the deplorable conditions of the house, but her response was that she was doing the best she could. He called his superior, explained that the girl needed medical attention immediately, then proceeded to take little Danielle out of the house. Michelle yelled at the officer to not take the girl, but he carried Danielle out to his car, buckled her in, and radioed ahead that he was taking her to the hospital. At the hospital, she weighed in at 46 pounds, or not quite 21 kilograms. It was discovered that she was severely anemic and, again, quite malnourished. So they tried to get her to eat, but they quickly discovered she simply didn't know how to chew and swallow solid foods. They decided to feed her through an IV and let her drink from a bottle, something that she was able to manage. Danielle was carefully bathed, her sores tended to. They had to cut a lot of her hair to even be able to begin to use the oil to comb all of the lice out. And once they were satisfied she was at a reasonably level state, the real evaluations began. They were quickly able to tell that she had never been to school and had never received any medical care. She didn't know how to hold a baby doll and didn't know what was happening when they attempted to play peekaboo with her. Danielle didn't maintain any eye contact, displayed no reaction to hot or cold, and when they had so carefully inserted the IV into her, she didn't even seem to register it. She didn't flinch 
She never cried. Nothing. With assistance, she could walk, but she did so sideways and on the tips of her toes. She had no speech whatsoever, didn't understand head movements indicating yes or no, but would, on occasion, make a sort of grunting noise. One doctor noted, quote, Hunched in an oversized crib, Danielle curled in on herself like a potato bug, then writhed angrily, kicking and thrashing. To calm herself, she batted at her toes and sucked her fists like an infant. End quote. It was decided that, due to the severe neglect, Danielle would be disabled for the rest of her life. Next was determining what might be possible for her development. She was evaluated by Dr. Kathleen Armstrong, Director of Pediatric Psychology at the University of South Florida Medical School. She was the first psychologist to examine Danielle. She stated that after all of the medical tests and brain scans, vision testing, hearing testing, and genetics checks were performed, they found nothing wrong with Danielle. She wasn't deaf. She wasn't autistic. She had no physical ailments such as cerebral palsy or muscular dystrophy. Nothing. What they surmised, based on her overall development and the conditions of that house, was that she had had no care or barely any interaction at all outside of necessary sustenance. Dr. Armstrong stated, quote, there was no light in her eyes, no response or recognition. We saw a little girl who didn't even respond to hugs or affection. Even a child with the most severe autism responds to those. This was the most outrageous case of neglect I've ever seen, end quote. According to the Center on the Developing Child Department at Harvard University, the basic architecture of the brain is constructed through an ongoing process that begins before birth and continues into adulthood. Early experiences affect the quality of that architecture by establishing either a sturdy or a fragile foundation for all of the learning, health, and behavior that follow. In the first few years of life, more than one million new neural connections are formed every second. Every second. In the first year alone, vital connections with regards to sensory pathways such as hearing and vision, language, and higher cognitive functions peak. Young children naturally reach out for interaction through behaviors such as babbling, facial expressions, and gestures. Adults respond with the same kind of vocalizing and gestures back at them. But when that doesn't happen, or if the responses are unreliable or inappropriate, the brain's architecture does not form as expected, which can lead to discrepancies in learning and behavior. The brain is most pliable during early life to accommodate a wide range of environments and interactions, but as the maturing brain becomes more specialized to assume more complex functions, it is less capable of recognizing and adapting to new or unexpected challenges. For example, by the first year, 
the parts of the brain that differentiate sound are becoming specialized to the language the baby has been exposed to. At the same time, the brain is already starting to lose the ability to recognize different sounds found in other languages. Although the windows for language learning and other skills do remain open, these brain circuits become increasingly difficult to alter over time. Early plasticity means it's easier and more effective to influence a baby's developing brain architecture than to rewire parts of its circuitry in the adult years. According to childwelfare.gov, the long-term health risks of abuse and or neglect are diabetes, lung disease, malnutrition, vision problems, functional limitations, heart attack, arthritis, back problems, high blood pressure, brain damage, migraine headaches, chronic illness, stroke, bowel disease, chronic fatigue syndrome, and even cancer. The stress related to the abuse and neglect, quite literally, affects the immune system and the very cells of your body. Child abuse and neglect have also been associated with certain regions of the brain failing to form, function, or grow properly. There is a correlation with actual reduced volume in overall brain size as well as the connections and communication between the regions of the brain, such as the amygdala, which is key in processing emotions, the hippocampus, which is central to learning and memory, the orbitofrontal cortex, which is responsible for reinforcement-based decision-making and emotion regulation, the cerebellum, which helps coordinate motor behavior and executive functioning, and the corpus callosum, which is responsible for left brain, right brain communication, as well as the process of arousal, emotion, and the higher cognitive abilities. And then we have the attachment issues and social difficulties, which I've covered in other podcasts. You see, attachment is that deep bond established between a child and their parent or primary caregiver, and it hugely impacts the child's development and their ability to express emotions and build strong relationships later. Attachment disorders do fall on a spectrum where the more severe end being the child is unable to establish healthy attachments with anyone. They have difficulty regulating their emotions. They do not trust or feel a sense of self-worth. They can't have people getting close to them and they lash out in anger for a need to control. They feel unsafe and alone. They may experience difficulty relating to others and are often developmentally delayed. The importance of nurturing has been shown again and again, and as I've talked about before, in the 1960s, psychologist Harry Harlow put groups of infant rhesus monkeys in a room with two artificial mothers, one made of wire that dispensed food, the other of terry cloth with extended cradled arms. Though they were starving, the baby monkeys all climbed into the warm cloth arms. You see, even primates need comfort more than they need food. 
Tracy Sheehan, Daniel's guardian in the legal system, who is now a circuit court judge, stated, quote, It's mind-boggling that in the 21st century, we can still have a child who's just left in a room like a gerbil, no food, no one talking to her or reading her a story. She can't even use her hands. How could this child be so invisible? End quote. So for six weeks, she was impatient at the hospital recuperating, and it was widely agreed that she should most assuredly not go back into her mother's care. Michelle was not allowed to call or visit her. She was being investigated on criminal child abuse charges. It was a tough call, but Danielle was sent to a state-run group home for severely disabled children in the hopes she might learn to do more and at the very least feel safe and cared for. And Actually, quite slowly, she picked up on a few motor skills, though she still couldn't feed herself, and she learned the basics of how to walk on her own. It was her extreme anxiety that manifested itself in screaming fits and incessant rocking in her bed at night. Her caregivers eventually put her on powerful antipsychotic medication that kept the worst of her fits and tics at bay, but left her morose and even more dissociated from those around her. She often sat with her tongue hanging out of her mouth and drooling. Later that year, Danielle started school for the first time. She was placed in a special education class at an elementary school. Kevin O'Keefe, her first teacher, said, quote, her behavior was different than any child I'd ever seen. If you put food anywhere near her, she'd grab it and mouth it like a baby. She had a lot of episodes of great agitation, yelling, flailing her arms, rolling into the fetal position. She'd curl up in a closet just to be away from everyone. She didn't know how to climb a slide or swing on a swing. She didn't want to be touched. End quote. It took her a year just to become consolable, he later said. By the time she was eight years old, it was decided that she could be available for adoption, though finding her a family who would be happy to change her diapers as well as meet all of her other needs seemed a heavy want. And yet, a couple in their later 40s saw her photo and were immediately drawn to her. Bernie and Diane Lero. Now, before we all get those warm fuzzies, it is important to note that in an article written for the New York Post, it said that the couple didn't want a child with severe special needs or one that wasn't potty trained and so on. But they said once they saw her, they wanted to help her. The couple couldn't at first outright adopt her because, well, Michelle refused to sign her parental rights away. Finally, when the prosecution offered to drop the child abuse charges, Michelle agreed to sign her rights over. Ultimately, Michelle was given just probation, scheduled to be completed in 2012 at that time. In 2007, the now nine-year-old Danielle accompanied Bernie and Diane home for an Easter visit. While they had grown children, they still had a younger son named Willie at home. 
Willie was happy to give up his bedroom that was closer to the parents' room so that Danielle, who still did not sleep through the night, could be right there. It was said Willie was excited for her to be there and shouted good night to her every night, knowing he would get no response and yet also knowing she knew. When Danielle first came to live with us, she was a couple months from being eight years old. Developmentally, she was anywhere between six months to maybe to 24 months. She didn't like walking and she loved being carried. She would have the tantrums seven or eight times a day. She would scream at the top of her lungs. She would stomp. She would flail her arms. She would throw herself on the floor. When Danielle first came, food was a constant concern of hers. She would eat it until she threw up. This would prove to be an excellent situation for the young girl. Her teacher at school noted immediately that Danielle seemed to be more relaxed and at peace, but there was still much work to be done to get the adoption set in motion and Danielle was left with a foster family for a few months. And in that time, it was observed that she had regressed back into her nearly catatonic self. You see, it was discovered that someone in the foster home had been stealing her antipsychotic medication which also meant that Danielle had endured a horrible detoxification process. But nonetheless, she went to live with her new family. It took nearly no time for Danielle and Willie to bond again, playing in the family's pool together. As Willie would tell her to jump into the water, he would exclaim, one, two, three, go! And eventually, she began saying go back to him. This was the first word they believed she ever learned. She began saying at any time it was time to go do anything, such as use the restroom, eat, bedtime, and so on. This was a big success. She was later able to ride a bike and even started therapeutic horse riding. So the family uprooted and moved to Tennessee onto a 26-acre farm with goats and other animals, and Danielle was in heaven. And while she never really learned to speak, she understood people and communicated back as best she could. It was said that when she was happy, she would make full eye contact, you know, pat her chest at her heart and say, I good. The couple even made an appearance on the Oprah show and co-wrote a book titled, quote, Danny's Story, A Journey from Neglect to Love, end quote. They went on to foster other children together and life seemed to be good for Danielle. They were able to potty train her enough that all she needed was a pull-up training diaper at night while she slept in her teens. She began to laugh out loud on her own when enjoying playing with toys, but not everything was roses. Her new parents believed specialists quit working with her because it was so difficult to see any progress, and Medicaid wouldn't pay for the private therapists, and the girl needed constant movement and sensory stimulation, which is common for children who didn't get held or rocked or appropriately exposed to sounds and sights. 
Then, about three years after the adoption, Diane was overwhelmed with Danielle's care and suggested they put her in a nursing home, but Bernie refused. It was at that point that he basically took over her full care. Now, during puberty, Danielle regressed a bit, including her potty training, and in 2015, the couple divorced. Now, Diane states her lawyer will not allow her to discuss the rest of the story, but caring for Danielle alone was also nearly more than Bernie could handle while also trying to work. Finally, when she became a legal adult, she was several inches taller than him and outweighed him by a good amount, and he was aging and needed help. Reluctantly, he placed her in a home for people with issues similar to hers, and that is where she resides today. As a 19, 20-year-old, she is content there, is treated very well there, and has even bonded quite a bit with a female staff employee. Bernie visits her often, but Diane and Willie haven't seen her in over a year. But Danielle is happy and doing really well. And that's her story. What's frustrating to me is that Michelle never served any prison time for the abuse and neglect that Danielle had endured the first seven years of her life. She was declared an unfit parent and sentenced her to community service, two years house arrest, and again probation until 2012. Michelle later said that after she lost her daughter, she tripped over a box at Walmart, then got into a car accident and could no longer work. So she went back to court and was able to get a judge to waive the community service hours she was assigned, which was a hundred hours, by the way. She and her grown sons moved out of the dilapidated and uninhabitable house into a trailer house just down the road. Someone on Reddit who knew about her situation said that she and the boys lived with an excessive amount of cats. When asked about this whole situation, all Michelle said was, quote, I guess I'm guilty for having a dirty house and not sending her to school, and I never took her to a doctor because she was never sick, end quote. She said that the house got that bad because she had gotten sick and no one would help her clean. Michelle actually said that she didn't realize having a dirty house was a crime. In 2008, someone located Michelle and interviewed her. She allowed them into her trailer, which they described as modest but clean, and that she smoked cigarette after cigarette. She went on and on for hours, and it seemed abundantly clear that she was full of excuses and self-pity. She defended herself by saying that Danielle just wouldn't potty train and that no schools would take her, though no school has any record of Michelle ever contacting them. She also said that the only thing she ever noticed that was wrong with her daughter was that she didn't talk much but swore Danielle could say things like, let's go eat, and that she had taken her little girl out for pizza and to play at the park. Of course, Michelle couldn't remember which pizza place or park they had been to. The Columbus Dispatch newspaper wrote, quote, 
Michelle's older son, Bernard, told a judge that he once asked his mom why she never took Danielle to the doctor. Something's wrong with her, he remembered telling her. He said she answered, quote, if they see her, they might take her away, end quote. Michelle said during her interview that she told the detective that removed Danielle from the home that her being that skinny was normal, that she and her sisters had been that thin when they were little too. And the lack of clothing for Danielle? Well, Michelle said that she bought her clothes, but she would just immediately remove them, though no such behavior like that was observed after her rescue. What's interesting is that Michelle was ordered by a judge to have a psychological evaluation and her IQ came back at 77, which was stated as, quote, borderline range of intellectual ability, unquote, for what it's worth. So I got most of my research material and information from the website projects.tampabay.com in an online article titled, Girl in the Window, written again by Lane DeGregory. I will put the link to the site in the notes if you want to read it. Photo credits are there on the site as well. Michelle died in 2020 at the age of 62 in Plant City, Florida, but from what I couldn't find. Both of Daniel's brothers are still living in Plant City as far as I could find also. And that's it. What do you guys think of this story? Leave me a comment below or you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. My contact information is down below. And most importantly, thank you so much for listening, guys, because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I really appreciate that. Thanks so much, guys. Have a great day.